0: This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. Basically, I mean in many ways, Anselm's theory of atonement has entered the Western theological tradition as more or less correct. You know, I mean, we might express it differently uh, today, but everybody recognizes the greatness of Anselm. You know, that the, uh, he, he, he makes sense, if you like, of the death of Christ, the resurrection, the, and, and, and so on. However, when you come to Martin Luther, Martin Luther moves Anselm on a little bit. He doesn't deny Anselm or go against Anselm particularly, but he deepens he develops Anselm in a slightly different way. If I can put it very, very simply, Anselm believed that Christ died for sins, for things called sins. And you pay, he paid the price of sin and when you draw on his grace, on his goodness to overcome certain sins, every sin has its value. You know, there, there's a hierarchy of sins. Some are worse than others and some need more grace than others. Uh, and of course, then it gets tied into a, a penitential regime. Uh, those sins that require more grace than others require more penance than others. Uh, so you do more penance in order to get more grace, uh, in order to pay the price of, uh, in order, you know, to actually apply it to uh, a more serious sin and so on. And you get distinctions like, you know, mortal sin that will kill you, venial sin, sins that can be forgiven. I mean, this is all sort of, you know, done out there. are even catalogues, lists, um, you know, of sins according to seriousness and, and what is needed for the, you know, how much grace is needed in order to forgive that particular sin and so on. It's quite developed theory uh, in this way. It led, of course, to a, a kind of mechanical view of penance, uh, that you know you you confess and you get your you're told what to do you do it and that cancels out one particular sin that kind of thing It also led uh, to uh, the whole concept of an indulgence because indulgences are basically um, it's basically time off in purgatory you know the notion that if you... Um, if you die without having paid the price for every, you know, for every sin that you committed on earth, you can't. You're not good enough. You can't go straight to heaven. So you have to go to purgatory instead and work off your remaining debt. You know, as we forgive our debts, as we uh, 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 forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. You know, there's this idea of debt well, all right, uh, you know, you, th- this is what you're doing, you're sort of clearing the decks, and when you finally paid your debt, uh, you can go to heaven. But the, the penitential system, and it's very interesting to study this, you see, in the, in the later Middle Ages, because to be perfectly blunt with you, the penalti- penitential system was a nuisance to administer. It required a great deal of effort on everybody's part and could be potentially at least very embarrassing and inconvenient. Because if you were given some sort of penance, you know, like um, you've got to stand barefoot in the snow for holding a candle for a week or, you know, something like this. Well. You can understand the principle and and, and so on and, and see why they want to do it, but it, it's actually a bit of a pain, you know. And I don't know about you, but certainly in the church where I was serving in London, I've already told you a lot about this church. We used to have people who took this sort of thing seriously. I mean, they didn't stand barefoot in the snow, thank goodness, um, but. Uh, you would get, we, we'd have these women in the church, you see, they, they would bake cakes and, 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 and so on for the clergy, you know, doing their bit for God. And you just get, you, you just get the sense that they're buying off God in some way, you know. Um, I mean, you can't tackle them on this, you can't say that, um, uh, you know, because it doesn't really work. But i never forget one day... Um, when I was ordained, when I, the the first time I, I celebrated the Eucharist communion, of course I'd never done it before, and I was very nervous, and you know, and all kinds of things. Anyhow, to make a long story short, I didn't elevate the host, you know, sort of lift up like this, elevate the. I just didn't do it. You know, had too many other things on my mind. Didn't do it. But I figured, oh, well, no one notices, and we just, you know, it we'll would just go on like this. Well, after the service, three little old ladies came running up to me, furious. And they looked at me, this is in London, you see, they looked at me, and they said, You never done that. <laughs> they go like that. And I looked, oh, no, somebody noticed. And, um, they didn't know what it was called and they had no idea what it meant mm-hmm. or anything. Oh no no, nothing like this, you see. But they just knew I hadn't done that. <laughs> and I said, "Oh dear, you know, this is my first time." And of course, you know, I'm so embarrassed and I I really didn't want to have a big, you know, fight over something like this. And I just, I said, I'm so sorry. And I said, you know, I said, it really obviously means a lot to you. And, you know, I've caused offense and I'm really very sorry that I've done it. I didn't mean to do that. And then they, they realized, you see, that I didn't get it somehow. And they said, do you know what that means? And I thought, Well, yes, I do, but I better not say because I may just get into some kind of theological. Yeah, they're not going to get it. And before, but before I could open my mouth and say anything, they said it's when you do that that we go out in the kitchen and switch the kettle on to boil the water for tea after the service. And now you're going to have to wait. And suddenly, the truth dawned. you see these these women never took communion. no, because they were out they were Martha's, you see, not me. They were out in the kitchen making the tea. And, well, and this and this was the signal to leave. <laughs> you know and. I was just, I was bowled over, I was totally stunned, you see, and I thought, oh, I'm so glad, there's no anything, not a clue, and no, and of course, it's when, when you realize this, that all of a sudden, all the theology and liturgy and stuff that you learn in college, you just kind of put it in the bin, you know, let that go. These people haven't any idea. <laughs> you, you have got to start at zero. This is ground zero. And sort of work your way up, you know. Like point number one being, actually, communion is something you're supposed to participate in. <laughs> you know, not leave when you think it's coming. <laughs> And No, I mean that was the way they thought, you know. This—I'm not saying everybody thought that way, of course, but but you know the fact that this could happen in the congregation, I mean, it was just astonishing. Um, and you know, they they sort of picked me up on this because I hadn't given them the signal <laughs> to do the necessary as they saw it. You see, and oh yeah, and I mean, um, uh, you know, this this kind of thing. I'll tell you stories about this, but. Um, but this particular point—that uh, uh, you, you know the centrality of this, and and and, uh, and the death of Christ, and so on—what does it mean, and, and and all the rest of it? You see, if you think of Christ dying for sins, then of course every sin is paid for somehow or other, and you have access to it. You see, because the the, the business of the church is to provide. The means, the access that you have, you know, if you come uh, in this way and and receive, and you see, I was supposed to say to these women, um, you are missing out on the grace of God, uh, you know, in, in 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 getting closer to Him because because instead of. Of, of you know coming and kneeling and, and, and receiving his grace in your life, you're going out and making the tea. Um, you know, that there's nothing wrong with making tea, but you, you, you've kind of got to get your priorities right. Anyway, that's what I should have said. I was too flabbergasted to say anything at this point. I just about fell over half dead. Um, but anyway. Um, you see, you're, 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 you're dealing with this. Luther, though, changes, the, or at least he, he, he pushes it one step further. He goes deeper into it. Because he said, actually, Christ did not die so much for sins as things that you can calculate, measure. He died for sinners, for people. And everything Luther said about being a justified sinner and everything like this really makes sense only when you realize this. You see, Jesus died for me and not just for my sins. Now, this is not contradiction. You know, It's not that he didn't die for my sins. Um, that's also true, but he died primarily for me. He wants me in his church. He wants me in his kingdom. And when he gets me, then he'll deal with my sins. You know, the, the, He'll clean up the sins once he's got me. This is the basic idea. Now, in theological terms, you see, this is called penal substitution. Penal substitutionary atonement as opposed to satisfactory, satisfaction. Satisfaction, Jesus pays the price for sin and then you apply this as required to the sins that you commit. All right. But Jesus dies for me as a person. The important thing is that I must die and be born again, be united to Christ. And then once that happens, once I am united with Christ, then I recognize that he has taken my place on the cross. I am the one who has driven him to Calvary. You see, I am the one who is guilty for sending him to the cross. Because if I were not a sinner, if I had not sinned, Jesus would not have died. I mean, it's very personalized in, in, in this way. You see, he died for me, and he was my substitute. He took my place on the cross. And he paid the price that I would otherwise pay. The, he took my punishment as well. It's penal. It's not just substitutionary, but it's also penal. I deserve to die. This is what, I sh- what should happen to me. But he has paid the price. He has taken this. He has become sin for me. You see, he has died in my place. And so when I am united with him, you see, united with him in his death and in his resurrection, then of course... I'm still going to go on sinning. I mean, there's not, you know, it doesn't exempt me from sin. But I know that he will forgive me for my sins. I still have to confess and recognize what they are uh, and so on. But my forgiveness is assured because of my union with Christ. I don't have to be afraid of this. And a lot of the things that Luther said, you know, some of the funny things that he said, like when he said to his, his sidekick Melanchthon, you know, told Melanchthon to go and sin boldly. Um, I mean, even today this comes as a bit of a shock. You know, why did Luther say to Melanchthon sin boldly? Well, of course, he didn't expect Melanchthon to go out and paint the paint the town red, you know, by sinning boldly. Um, but he simply said, well, what he meant was um, if, you, if you sin, as you do, uh, you know, don't panic. I mean, don't fall apart because of this, because you know that your Savior will forgive you. Um, you know, it, of course it's not... Uh, a a case of running around, you know, committing as many sins as you can in order to get as much forgiveness as you can. I mean, the Apostle Paul kicked that one uh, on the head, you know, when he said, shall we sin that grace may abound? I mean, how absurd. Uh, You know, not this, no. Uh, But, uh, but this sense that um, you would not be refused forgiveness, you know. The, 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 the Church, and of course it was, the issue was, well, could the Church excommunicate you? Could the Church, you know, basically stop you getting uh, forgiveness, the, the grace of God, and so on? And Luther, in effect, uh, says no, because, uh, because you are united with Christ. Um, and the Church cannot stand in the way of that. I mean, the Church can act as the, the, the intermediary, the agent, and so on, um, but the Church can't cut you off from God because you haven't done what they want. Um, You you know, it doesn't doesn't work like this. And and this is what brought the Protestant Reformation into being. And this is what, over the years, has caused, I don't know how much, misunderstanding uh, between the two sides. Because, of course, from the Catholic side, this is, heard, this is heard as a kind of presumption, you know. What do you mean, sin boldly? Um, you know, are you presuming on the grace of God? I mean, how can you say that You know, God will just automatically forgive everything you do? I mean, don't you take him seriously, uh, his commands, and so on? I mean, aren't you genuinely uh, ashamed and guilty, and so on, when you sin? are you taking it seriously enough? That's from their point of view, you see, they see this. Whereas, of course, from the Protestant point of view, um, they would say, well, the church is trying to control my spiritual life. You see, uh, I, I may have sinned, I go to the priest, I confess my sin, the priest doesn't like me for some reason. So he refuses me absolution. Maybe he's not supposed to refuse me, ever, but let's say he does. He, he claims the power to do this because, say, I haven't paid my tithe or, or something like that. Does this have a, have, a, have a real effect? And, of course, the Protestant of mine would say, well, no. You know, no human authority, no human power can actually cut you off from God. Uh, this is, this is, this is uh, presumptuous you, in, a, in a different way, and so the misunderstanding. I mean, of course, the Catholic will say, "Well, that's not what it's all about," but but the Protestant will say the same thing. The Protestant will say the Catholics have caricatured the Protestants, the Protestants have caricatured the Catholics, and so the two sides, you know, pass like ships in the night, and neither one really understands the other. Uh, you know, as, as you uh, as you go through, and. Uh, and this is, this is what we're stuck with, you see. This is the problem that we have. Um, because I, I think people haven't really gone into the, the, the origins of this, um, you know, with the, the, the depth and the, the understanding that they could have uh, had. You see, I think if, uh, if you put it starkly, like, you know, did Jesus die for sins or did he die for sinners? discussing that and working through that, it might be possible to come to some kind of agreement because it's not really an either or, it's a both and, you know, and it's how you put the two together. But if you don't go to that level and and start there and work your way through, you don't come to agreement because all you're really doing is, is arguing about things that appear to you to be wrong or inadequate. Without really, you know, getting getting underneath. Now, in recent years, of course, there've been dialogues and theological discussions back and forth, which have purported to come to agreement. You know, agreement on things like justification by faith and so on. Um, which, well, I mean, you know, that's that's a step in the right direction, shall we say. Whether it's really Overcome the gaps and and filled in the blanks, and so on. this remains to be seen. Uh, you know, I don't know that we've quite reached that stage yet, um, but I think we can thank God that at least after four hundred years or five hundred years, there's dialogue. You know, people are actually talking about these things and sort of realizing that we have to get beyond. The kind of arguments of the past—that this is not um, not good enough. You know, you have to uh, go more deeply into it. And I hope and pray that in the next hundred years or so, because it'll probably take that long, um, you know, that that some reconciliation, some un- mutual understanding will occur. I mean, that would be great if it does. Um, but of course, the price that will only happen if both sides are prepared to change. Uh, you know that, that you can't sort of hide behind entrenched positions because if you do you'll that's where you'll stay uh, you know you, there, there, there won't be any movement um, because there can't be you're busily defending rather than exploring uh, you know where we, how we can how we can bridge this um, you're just defending your own inherited traditions which may not be bad or wrong i mean i'm not saying that um, but you need to kind of think it through, you see, and, 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 and see whether we can't, uh, come to some new and, and perhaps deeper understanding. That's really where we are in the church right now. But I want you to understand this, you see, to understand what the nature of the differences are, uh, is rather, what the nature is, of differences is, and appreciate that this, that at the root of it is a question of sin versus sinner you know um, and it affects of course the whole way we think about things like holiness uh, sanctification justification and so on um i mean and i will conclude on this this is just going to be my concluding remark what does it mean to be holy What does it mean to be a saint? If you look at the New Testament, the word saint applies to any Christian. When the Apostle Paul wrote to Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, he wrote to the saints who are in Ephesus. And he didn't mean just the one or two people who led outstandingly good lives. He meant the entire congregation. And we know what he thought about their holiness from the rest of what he says in the letter because it's basically like, you know, you animals get your act together. Uh, You know, uh, if you were really what you claim to be, you wouldn't be living like this. But you are, in fact, the scandal was that they were saints but not living like it. That was the problem. All right. Today, however, I mean, let's just try a little experiment. I mean, if I walked in here and and you know introduced myself at the beginning of the class and said hello, uh, you know, I've just you know come to teach you this week, and I, I'm I'm Gerald, and nice to meet you, and so on. I just want you to know I'm a saint. Well, I couldn't say that, could I? Um, because you're. Even if it's true in New Testament terms, that's not what you would hear. What you would hear if I said that, I might as well turn to you and say, I'm perfect. You know, because that's what the word saint tends to mean if it's used like that, you know. I have achieved a higher level of moral and spiritual uh, uh, life than you have or than most people have. I might include you if I'm being generous, but you know on the whole, um, uh, this is the notion that, that comes across. Now you can argue as much as you like that that's false, that it's a misunderstanding, that it shouldn't you know uh, uh, be the way people think, blah blah blah. I don't care how much you argue about this, this is the way people actually think. This is the impression you really convey. Whether you mean to or not, whether it's right or not, this is not not the issue. Uh, the, The fact is, that's what is heard, you see, when you talk like this. And this is the problem that we face, because holiness, is a concept that is almost as impossible to use today as sin is, and for the same reason. Because if you don't understand sin, you won't understand holiness either, you know? I mean, very few people would go around calling themselves holy. But if you did, and if you think like that is, the few people who understood you or who, you know, made some sense of what you were trying to say might think that what you were saying was, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't go to the cinema, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do something else. Or uh, conversely, if you want to be positive about it, you know, I pray three hours a day on a hard stone floor. I go to church six times a, a week. Um, uh, you know, I, do, uh, I give my money to, you know, the, the, the church. I do this, I do that, you know, all this kind of thing. And that's what constitutes holiness. In other words, it's actions or, or non actions outward things, external things, rather than an internal state of heart and mind. You know, I'm not saying that everybody thinks like that or that nobody considers the internal heart and mind aspect of it, but generally speaking for most people, this is the impression that is conveyed. And we have to be honest and say that the church all the churches, Catholic, Protestants, and so on, have allowed this impression to continue and indeed have encouraged it in the past. You know, that to be holy is to live a certain kind of way um, rather than to be a certain kind of person. And it's difficult to deal with. It's a very difficult problem to deal with. Because most of the things that people associate holiness with are in themselves good. You know, I mean, it's good not to smoke, not to drink, not to play cards, not to... I mean, it's good to go to church all the time. I mean, there's nothing wrong with any of this. But it's just... Is that enough? Is that what it's really all about? Is that the key? You see, and because we've we've settled for a superficial understanding too often, we have actually discredited the whole idea. You know, uh, with the result that um, that as a as a church in general, we're now confused because a lot of people realise. That, you know, whether you eat fish on Friday or not, it's hardly here or there as far as God is concerned. So they don't worry about this kind of thing. But they don't put anything in its place. You know, They've, reject, they've rejected the inadequacy of the old without pursuing the truth. They've just, they've just moved on to something else and given up thinking about the subject altogether. And, and that's a real problem that we face. Because if the church is full of people who don't want to admit they're sinful, it's even fuller of people who don't want to be bothered pursuing holiness. I'm not talking about the theologically educated people. I'm talking about the average person who hears these words, you see. And the reason I'm saying this is because the risk is that you end up, you can end up talking about this kind of thing without realizing that you're not communicating. Most people, if they've ever heard of the word or or given it any thought, probably don't don't think that they think they think more in terms of Pharisaical legalism, either for good or for bad. And this is a real problem that we have to get over, you know. Without, as I say, falling into these traps, you see. I mean, um, uh, you see, I know people. Um, and, and this is a real problem um, in certain circles. I know people who were brought up to believe uh, you know, that, that alcohol was of the devil and you mustn't touch it. So now, of course, they drink like fish. You see, because they, 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 they're getting away from this. I mean, I, you know, I, I've had students like this. And, I mean, I personally have nothing against drinking as I mean alcohol as such. I don't think it's bad or good or or anything really but I don't get involved in this kind of thing and if I think that somebody's you know doing this for this reason I'll stay far away from it because it's not right. You know, Uh, I mean to be to be deliberately Anti, you know, to to sort of overthrow the, the 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 false doctrine of the past, but to go to the other extreme in a way, you know, to just show off that we're free to do this kind of thing, because it's not what holiness is really all about. To me, is just as bad, if not worse, than the other the other side, because the at least the the, the Pharisaical thing. You know, you were doing the right thing, if for the wrong reason. Now people do the wrong thing for the wrong reason, and that's got to be worse. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one-week or semester-length courses in person at our South Florida campus, or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.